0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land.
1: Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio six ten Sean Bajani. And joining us is an old friend and Texans contributor for the Houston Chronicle, Stephanie Stradley. And I can't believe, Steph,
2: it's been 17 years with Cron.com. Is that right? Oh, geez. I haven't done the math, but that sounds <laughs> about right. I can't believe it. I can't believe okay. it. But, you know.
1: You're still only 25, too, which is that's the hard thing. That's right.
2: That's right. You know, the, the Texans are old enough to drink now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome.
1: Steph, you, you've got a lot of insight to the Texans fan base. What yeah. are you hearing? What kind of feedback are you getting about how that lost section of the fan base is feeling with this offseason?
2: I I can't speak for all of the fan base, but I can tell you, I went, I was at the draft party. I've been to pretty much all of the draft parties since at least the Mario Williams draft. So I have seen some things. This was amazing. I mean, I had a sense they would take quarterback in the first round, but nobody really knew for sure what they were going to do. And that's fine. Like, that's what you really want early on with the process. D'Amico Ryans had kind of let the cat out of the bag and said, well, there's two quarterbacks. And kind of the implication when he was first hired is, hey, one of those quarterbacks is going to be the Texans. You know, there was all the noise about trading up to the first pick and that they really wanted Bryce Young. But there was a lot of different noise out there, and some of it was inconsistent. And my full approach up to that point was just, hey, you know, don't worry about ghosts, you know what's going to happen is going to happen. It was amazing being at the draft party because, you know, when they announced the pick, you know, CJ Stroud, then, you know, there was much rejoicing because, you know, that's the most important you know position on the field and you're taking a shot at it. You, you don't know how it's going to turn out, but, you know, a key part of what the Texans are going to try to do this year is, is you need a quarterback that's accurate. And, you know, that is part of, you know, CJ Stroud's game. There was that component of it and then so like everybody's rejoicing, people are moving around and then I think I almost blacked out during the next part because all of a sudden people start screaming and I'm like what is going on here and I look up at the big screen and Texans are on the clock and it was pretty amazing. It was amazing. I mean, I I think it's hilarious like just looking at the fan base, it's hilarious that over the years, you hear the same debates over again. Over again, you know, you need to have a quarterback, and you need a pass rush and defensive linemen or premium positions. And you know, the, you know, the early debate is, hey, you know, you you took David Carr and you passed up on Julius Peppers, and now we're just like, we take both. I mean, it's an amazing approach because we've heard this debate over time. And like, you know, if you think in this particular draft, there's a lot of maybe solid starters in the draft, but out of the elite players, any number of people had said there's like six to, let's say 12, right? If your analysis is, hey, these are the two players you want at premium positions, positions that are hard to get. And you're starting the development clock this year. Cause you know, frankly, they should have started the development clock on players like years ago, but like, you know, this is what where things are. So this is amazing. They got two. Some people might say the two best players in the draft, depending on how you're analyzing things. And you know they have a. You know they started the development clock, and they definitely have a direction. If you just look at the the draft top to bottom, including looking at undrafted free agents, like there is definitely a theme to this particular draft.
1: You, you think the fans are are happy with the other things that are going on as far as the stuff that's kind of angled towards them, because, you know, they lost so many people. And I don't think it was as simple as, okay, we got to meet go Ryan's and maybe we look like we're a little bit more in a positive direction. Is there, you know, was there anything else that you thought that they needed to work on and and what, what is the feeling with that?
2: Well, I mean, I think, I think just generally speaking, um, Houstonians and Texans in general have very high standards for their football. Like, you know, the Cowboys and the Texans haven't been good enough, you know, long enough. And so there has been very high standards for what the fans expect from the Texans because they kind of went the extra mile when they had to create a whole franchise from scratch. And there has been turnover. But, like, I know in talking to everyone that their intentions are to fix things with fans. And it's just a question of, like, At what point do people feel okay coming on board? Like, you know, there are people out there that are completely on board, but like for other people, it's going to just take some time where they feel like they're a part of it and they feel welcome to be a part of it. And I think a big part of that is I have my t-shirt on. It's a D'Amico t-shirt, DMC. It's kind of a play on uh, the DeLorean kind of back to the future. I mean, if you look at the kind of person that D'Amico Ryans is, and like his first year as a rookie was my first year writing at the Chronicle, everything that he's about is what Texas football is about. It's about being real, treating people like adults, trying to put players really much in the best position to win, that leadership is about getting people to follow you, not because you're the boss, but because what you're saying makes sense to them and is going to be good for everybody as a team and that it's not about an individual. It's about the team as a whole. Like he's a real person. He's an authentic person. He's he's been in a position for many years where he knows how to talk to people in football terms in recent years. And and this is not a blame. This is just an observation There have been people put in situations where they're talking directly to the fan base who haven't had that experience before. And it's a skill. It's a skill to talk to people from all different backgrounds and some are with you and some are against you. And, and D'Amico's way of talking is just football talk. Football talk is like, it's about performance. And, and, you know, so far, you know, he's, you know, he's taking the lead on things and really, that's what you needed. You needed a football person putting a message out that's worth following. And, you know, this draft is that kind of draft. This is a performance draft. This isn't, you know, this is basically, Hey, you know, we, we have to earn it. And, um, you know, they're trying to put the, those pieces in place, but like, as it relates to individual fans, that that's an individual thing. Like, you know, there have been entry points and exit points, to this franchise for many years, and um, the you know, not just the last couple of years, but longer than that has been difficult. Like, they were winning under O'Brien, but it, the, the feeling wasn't completely aligned at that time, you know, where people were like, okay, yeah, you're winning, but not winning the way that, like, Let's say Mahomes, like you watch, you see what Mahomes is doing with Andy Reid, and you're like, why, why aren't we being more like this? Why does this look so difficult? Why are you making it harder on yourself not having a general manager? Like so, there's been a lot of things that they've had to fix over time. There's people that have entered and exited the organization. There's people that have entered and exited the fan base, and really, at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing, and it's you know, it's nice to it's nice to hear the way that D'Amico Ryans talks to everyone. And, but it's going to take some time with some people. And that, that makes sense because it's been a difficult number of years. You know, you've seen it.
0: I love
3: the way you uh, break things down, Steph. Uh, only you can do it. I mean, you, you do it in such a way where people can understand. And, you know, when, when I'm listening to you talk about D'Amico and how he talks to people, his players, the fans, media, um, you know, we know how important it is, you know, sometimes for uh, new blood to come into an organization and have that person be a former player. What kind of juice that brings? It just seemed like with these hiring candidates uh, this off season, you know, the Sean Paytons of the world and, you know, all of these guys, there were some good coaches out there. There's no doubt about sure. that.
2: And they were talking to them this, this, this time around, they were yeah. talking to a lot of really great candidates uh, that's, that's exciting. And and they ended up getting one that I think is going to be just a, a tremendous fit. The,
3: the, the point that I was going to make though um, you're right is they were, they were legitimately looking for a guy to help them turn the worm, you know, um, turn the page on this rebuild. Um, but with D'Amico, you know, he brings this element that seems to come almost so natural to him, in my opinion, that, you know, a football locker room is kind of a melting pot. There's all kinds of people from all over the country, you know, with different upbringings. They're used to certain systems, certain ways to communicate with others and to be communicated with. And he just has a way about him to just pull uh, the very best, it seems out of anyone around him. We saw it as a player covering him for, you know, uh, years past when he was with the Texans. And I think that's what he's going to bring as a coach. I mean, we don't know anything about him to be honest with you as a coach in terms of you know what kind of mind he is defensively uh we know he can rally the troops and uh, get a defense together can he get a team together in well and
2: and and he's been able to get the best performance of different types of players on defense yeah Yeah. and and what's great about it is you know i know some people want to go oh you know former texan da da da, but i mean he has performed at a high level in everything that he's done to date. He okay. performed at a high level as a player, both here and with the Eagles and saw what they did up close. And then he earned it with the 49ers and he earned the respect of the pe- people that he coached. I mean, the, the people that have worked with him are his biggest fans. Now, of course he has to show it, but I mean he has a, just a great football mind and he has just a good way of communicating to people and and really football is a communication business because you're trying to get people to do things that are violent and health risking um as a, as a group as a team like mm-hmm. you that's a hard thing to do it's a hard thing to do it's like okay we're we're going to do this thing that brings this many people together because it's not just like oh well you know we're gonna have a figurehead for you know you know baseball or or basketball like you know it, you I mean of course those those people have to you know be good at their jobs but it's not as many people there's so many parts to a football team mm-hmm. um, and and that's what's what what I'm very excited about is I think that um, Nick Casario's skills work very well with D'Amico Ryan's skills, that the things that each of them are strong at help the other person. And and I, I you know I know that there has been kind of this dialogue that, you know, Nick shows relief that he has more help. And I, I think that's real. I think that's real. Now, you know, of course they're coming at things from kind of different orientations, but a lot of it's the same orientation, which is just football talk. Like there are certain things that that everybody has as an expectation for football. And maybe some things are emphasized more by different types of teams, but there are some just basic things like talk to people like adults, give them reasons why they should be doing the things that, that they're doing and, and trying to get people to work together as a team and trying to put together a roster that makes sense where you have a good combination of experienced players and young players coming together for a common common goal like i i'm excited to, like i don't know how this is going to turn out but this is this is a storyline that i like if this is a tv show this is a tv show i want to watch yeah
1: speaking of uh people that were anxious to see what he can do cj stroud and steph yeah. i don't know if you heard this story but cj stroud apparently pushed the texans to trap tank dell right after he was drafted tank said they'd messaged right after stroud was drafted and then cj said he let them know he wanted Dell and messages sent before Tank was drafted. Stroud was impressed with Dell at the combine. Did you like that from CJ Stroud taking some leadership and the Texans maybe looking to him for that information and, and, and really taking it seriously? Or is that all a concern that CJ Stroud has that much say as the quarterback, all of like five, five, to five minutes into the, into the process?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sweet story. I don't know how. Like, I, I do know that when, when teams draft players, like, they get whatever information that they can get from whatever sources. Like, they will talk to people inside the building. And, of course, they, they may have talked to him about it. Um, I mean, I'm guessing that he was already on their radar to some degree anyway. Um, what, what I am impressed with, with this entire group, is you know like i know that some people are like well you could have you could have drafted more players if you didn't you know trade up or you know this guy was rated higher than this guy but i don't think that there this year in particular there was a consensus for let's say for wide receivers like if you talked to 20 people who focus on the draft exclusively they would give you 20 different versions of who are the best people in this particular draft. Now I can tell you, if you just look through the list of players, you know, of course there's been a lot made that they were captains. So, you know, you're wanting some level of responsibility, but you don't get to be a captain if you're not performing. Like you have, you have to perform if that is going to be part of your background and like the wide receivers that they drafted, you know, they didn't just, you know, test well, they performed well in college. Like all of the guys that they drafted have some level of performance. They're not like workout warriors or okay, this guy ran this and you know that you know some some fans may not like that you know you know they're not looking at like height weight as much as maybe some other teams are, but like these guys performed, they performed and they're gonna expect the young players to perf- perform. And, and it, it, it applies also to the undrafted free agents. Like there's some key undrafted free agents. They performed like maybe, maybe they weren't drafted as high because maybe some of the measurables weren't there or they might be considered developmental prospects, but you can see why, why they're brought into the team. And I think my understanding of it is the way that they're drafting is they see these individuals as people that if, if, they get you know, injury luck, of course, and development that they have very high ceilings of, of what they could do as an NFL player.
3: Big question for me, Steph. Um, and you kind of started to get into it in terms of what the Texans roster constructions looked like outside of the draft free agency. I really liked what they did. Um, they brought in a lot of leaders, you know, namely Denzel Perryman in the linebacker core, Jimmy Ward in the secondary. They've got a really solidified now offensive line, maybe for the first time in recent memory. Robert Woods in the receiver core. What did you think of the way Nick Casario and D'Amico Ryan's really constructed this roster this off season, and now mixing in these young? performing leaders that they drafted now seven of the nine players as you mentioned were team captains and they were high performers you talk about Hutchinson and Dell being two of the most productive wide receivers in all of college football this past season what did you think of it uh does it does it vibe with you and what do you think it kind of lends itself to I mean coming from a team that kind of stumbled into four wins this past year what's, what's the end game for you in the 2023 season
2: well, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, you think back to the Kubiak Shanahan type of of teams. Like, first of all, you start at the quarterback. You need an accurate guy slinging the ball. Um, that, like, that's probably the the key skill. Can you throw the ball accurately? Which, you know, and and you may remember that a lot of the quarterbacks who ran the system said, "Yeah, there's always a place to go." To with the ball, right? Mm-hmm. For your wide receivers, you need them to be able to catch the ball. Like it doesn't matter if you run really fast; if you can't catch the ball, um, like like high possession is is like the absolute essential to this offense. And I have to say, in recent years, <clears throat> I mean, all throughout the O'Brien era, I was like, you know, they don't catch the ball; they don't run precise. Routes And, like, everything is very detail-oriented with this offense. Back in the day, my my question was always, well, you know, if if this offense is so productive, why aren't more teams running it? And I think, well, now more teams are running variations of it. But I think part of it is you have to make sure that the offensive line coaching is just spot on. Like, the details are important because the way that the offense is supposed to work is – recognizing that defensive linemen are usually more athletic than the offensive linemen. So the entire offense is supposed to look the same, whether you're running the ball, you're passing the ball, you know, the short pass is supposed to be considered kind of a run. So you can't have any drop passes. You have to have precision with that. So everything goes together where you might like, you know, Andre Johnson for this offense, um, was an extra like, but sometimes you could see that like, like there was a a variety of different targets and depending on which defense that you're playing. And we might actually see tight ends again, being productive. Like this is exciting to see with, with what they're doing on offense. And then on the defensive side of the ball, you know, they had a lot of good players, but you know, you can't be on the field as long as they had been on the field and run a productive defense or say that you're running a physical defense, but you don't have the players to do it. Like, so, you know, they, they are investing in that in the front seven. And so, you know, and you could see moments where things were working last year, but you just didn't have, you just didn't have the offense. You didn't have the quarterback. And now, You know, we have seen different varieties of developing quarterbacks, you know, where we spent five years watching David Carr. That was less than (laughs) ideal. And then we saw Deshaun Watson perform right away, but then get injured. And so quarterback development, you know, if it was easy, then everybody would have a quarterback and most of the teams don't. So like, but this is interesting to see how they're going to be able to do it. Like they have a lot of new new coaches and new positions, but new doesn't mean bad new. You know, if you come from a scheme where everybody's working on the same page, this could be, this could be interesting. It could be amazing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they can do. And, and what's exciting about that is they already have some things in place. Like, yeah, the special teams has been kind of holding down the fort the last couple of years, you know, it, and, and it's nice, like you know, if you know kind of symbolically you know your second your third pick offense defense so often over the course of the the Texans history, either the offense has been good or the defense has been good. But if you look just number wise over the the legal drinking age Texans, there were very few times where this was a balanced team where the offense and the mm-hmm. defense. Um, could you know could both win you games? You know, usually one was pulling the other, and and I would I would hope that they get to the point where it's it's a more balanced team and a more entertaining team because if you look at the schedule, this schedule is gettable. The AFC South is gettable, and then once you get into the playoffs, anything is possible. Like, but they need to take the next step where they are a relevant team, and I think that they have some pieces in place that could be a relevant team, and that's exciting.
1: What's up next for you, Steph? Just a uh, rookie mini camp. You working on anything uh, for the Chronicle or?
2: Not, not particularly. I mean, I, the, I, I do think at some point I'm going to put together just some, some things where I know that, that fans have questions about things or like, why are, why is this, this and why is that? And I think a lot of that why stuff will get clarified. The more time elapses that, you know, when, In in the last piece I wrote, one of the things I was talking about is that people can't be their best in times of crisis or chaos, where there isn't like a leadership direction, that people are trying to deal with things instead of just being their best. And one of the main messages that D'Amico Ryan has given to the players, and pretty much everybody is like, well, what is your expectations for Will Anderson? It's like, you know, it's going to be good enough if you just this is best. And so I, I think that is kind of the direction where people can focus more on the football and less on, you know, some of the distractions. And, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of people like when, when things are kind of up in the air, people hear gossip or, or, or grab onto gossip and want to hold on to it even though it may not have anything to do with reality. And you saw that kind of in the draft, like there was an absence of information and some people took that absence of information in a negative way, when they should have just known that uncertainty isn't good or bad, it just is uncertain. And and so when things are kind of in a, a more aligned leadership direction and a more conventional football direction, a more normal football direction, Um, it's easier for people to just kind of like, hey, we just need time to see how this works out. Let's just see what the news is as opposed to kind of like manufacturing, you know, kind of fan fiction of what's really going on at at NRG. Sometimes it's like what they're saying is just like what's happening.
0: Can't
1: agree with you more. Great stuff, Steph, at Steph Stradley on Twitter, cron.com, always fun to catch up with you. Thanks for doing this, Steph. Thanks for taking some time.
2: Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Steph.
1: Great stuff from Steph, Sean. But, uh, hey, let's switch to the Astros and get to that mode for a a few minutes. Not the best weekend for the Astros, Sean. I don't know if you noticed they dropped two out of three from the Mariners, although J.P. Francis' debut was nice. Five scoreless for the 28-year-old newbie. What did you
3: think? I thought he was awesome. Uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, the guys got some pretty – uh, pretty wild stuff, man. Um, it was good to see him locate the fastball. He was really sharp on the breaking ball. I liked his composure on the mound. He saw results, which is huge for, you know, a guy like that, getting his first opportunity with the big club. Though, I want to see him, you know, once the scout film's out there on him now, you know, come back and make that second start. But uh, it was good. I just, I wish they could have gotten him the dub. Uh, That night, you know, the bullpen, um, which, you know, went through a really good stretch. There had been pretty good, but um, it's it's been a little touch and go with uh, guys like Montero, especially.
1: Well, Montero, I want to defend him because that was the craziest inning. He gave up a walk. Yes, but he gave up two infield singles. One of them was off of his glove and then they couldn't get it. There was another like weird seeing eye infield single. The double that cleared the bases was just out of Kyle Tucker's reach. I thought maybe Tucker should have tried to dive the ball, keep him in, keep it in front of him. I don't know if that yeah. keeps that third run from getting off the board. I don't know if that does anything. Of course, th- th- then the floodgates opened after Montero came out. Some other guys, but you know, Montero haven't been thrilled with his contract. Or you know, I, I knew he wasn't going to pitch like he did last year. Maybe to the extent that we saw of him just smoking everybody all most of last year, but. I just didn't think it was his fault as much this time around.
3: No, maybe not this time around. And I'm with you on wanting to defend him a little bit because he's obviously been getting crushed. Uh, And I went back today, actually, and looked at his game logs. And look, there was only four instances uh, before this previous outing in which he'd allowed an earned run to score. But then I look at the hits um, and I need to do a little bit of a deeper dive on this. I want to see what, you know, the hard hit percentage is on a lot of these, because obviously you mentioned, you know, there was some fluky ones the other night, but um, it, it's just, he's not producing, he's not seeing the results. I'll put it that way that, that he saw, you know, much of the time last year for us. And, you know, he's a guy that we talked about. You know, when Naris got his deal, Montero got his deal, it was like, well, okay, who do you feel better about? I felt better about Naris because, you know, he'd, he'd looked that way before. You know, it wasn't like a um, an anomalous kind of feeling year for him last season with the Astros. Sure, he did a lot of things that he wasn't used to, but Montero kind of burst onto the scene at the age of 31. Now he's 32 years old. You give him all this money. He was a guy I was a little concerned about maybe taking a step back. Um, I just, I, I hope he can kind of correct some things. Um, But maybe it looks a little bit worse, you know, when box scores and game logs, when you look at it and, you know, case in point, you know, the little fluky hit the other night that and without the walk, maybe things look a little bit differently. Um, hopefully just, you know, like for him, the rest of the team starts, uh, you know, trending in a little bit more of a positive direction. But it's not just any one guy, man. Uh, unfortunately for the Astros right now, sitting at five hundred and three and a half and games back in the AL West right now. I mean, you're looking at a handful of guys in, in the bullpen, on the starting staff and in your lineup every day that just flat out need to produce. Um, they need to be themselves, you know, Bregman's got to get back to being Bregman. Jordan's got to kind of snap out of it. Tucker's got to – and, you know, maybe he is. Maybe we talked about it last time. I said the guy had an extra base hit and, like, God knows how long. And then and dude rips a double, like, the same night. Yeah, we
1: had I, I, the, the, the issue isn't Tucker or Jordan. Those guys have done a ton this year. And, yeah, they – they're hey, you know what? They're allowed to slump. Bregman can't – I mean, I I know you struggle in, in April. Every year, Alex Bregman – but this was the year we needed you not to struggle because Jose yeah. Altuve wasn't there to bail you out. Uh, Michael Brantley's not there to bail you out. There's not guys in this lineup that have the age and all of that sort of stuff. And Mauricio Dubon, we're, not, we're starting to see him come down to earth. We knew that was going to happen. Corey Jolks has come down to earth. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I said, Corey Jolks, he hasn't walked. And I thought, well, that's going to come. He's got a history of walking in the mind. He's still not walking. Corey Jolks, when you're struggling, Don't try to hit every pitch. You're allowed to take some walks every now and then you're allowed to take some pitches and they just have issues with a couple of their guys in the order that, you know, they, they got to walk a little bit more. Mauricio Dubon's got some of the younger guys, you know, there's gotta be a little bit more patience. And, you know, I want to see the hitting coaches like instill that in these guys, like, Hey, you know, wait for your pitch, quit swinging at everything.
3: And that's that's what's gotten Alex Bregman out of, you know, his slumps, you know, in years past is just being a little bit more patient at the plate, um, you know, walking a little bit more um, and really just kind of retraining that eye to see the ball out of the pitcher's hand. Um, You know, follow me if you will, but just this is kind of just to kind of highlight what really goes on between the pitcher and hitter battle. I read an interesting article earlier today. Uh, which was highlighting Brent Strom and the job that he's done in Arizona. It was on SI. I don't know if you caught it, but it was, it was pretty entertaining to read this. And it was talking about, you know, the things that this 73 year old guy who you would not associate with all of this analytical um, and advanced data is using and is using to perfection. And he's also able to apply just his 50 plus years of baseball knowledge and quickly see, like, if it's an arm slot or if it's a grip or if it's placement by the foot of the pitcher on the mound and how they want to attack the hitter and how much he studies hitters. All of these things are going on throughout baseball. And where did he kind of hone that craft in, you know, over his nine years as a major league pitching coach? Well, it was during eight of them here with the Houston Astros. And their pitching coach now is sort of a descendant of Brent Strom in that way of thinking and his ability to kind of analyze and look at some data. So I think, you know, the value that a pitching coach brings is obviously to the pitchers, but I think they can obviously bring the value to the hitters as well. And that, that was all birthed here and perfected here with the Houston Astros. They have the wherewithal to do it. They have the guys that, you know, have proven out, um, year after year after year, that they can and they will produce. It's just a matter of time. Um, and so as much as you know, we're talking about, well, hey, XYZ guy needs to improve this, that, and the other thing, I think that that's coming. Um, it's just not always like clockwork. You know, Sometimes April bleeds into early to mid-May um, with these guys that start slow. It's where you start to get really concerned is a guy like Abreu. And I know we're beating him like a dead horse, but it's just – that example that I'm going to continue to use until he proves otherwise where maybe sometimes it's not about a slow start. Maybe sometimes it's, you know what, this guy's lost a little bit of a step, or maybe sometimes this guy just isn't seeing something and he doesn't know why it's never happened to him before these things you got to work through. So I'm going to be patient still. Again, it's all about positioning, not necessarily about performance, because again, you can have that sort of patience when your players have, um, you know, been, are, are proven. We know what they're capable of. Well, that,
1: that, here's the thing though, uh, Sean, Dusty is like super patient with some of these guys, but just because a guy is proven doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to keep batting him fourth when he hasn't hit the ball for five straight weeks. It doesn't mean just because Martín Maldonado is this supposed mm-hmm. genius with the pitching staff. If you're not winning games and the pitching staff isn't, You know, they're not uh, the only ones uh, or or they're not, you know, like the answer either right now. They're not exactly rolling. So, like, it might be time to, you know, you do have options for Maldonado. You know, John or Diaz, you know, play him a little bit more, especially early in the season. Because if you love Maldonado as much as you do, Dusty, you're talking about a guy that's getting older. And Dusty needs to realize father time is undefeated. He is a mid thirties catcher. If you love Maldi and you think you're getting to the postseason and you, you know, you consider yourself the great manager that you do, then it is okay to bench Maldi a little bit early in the season, have those legs fresh for later on, especially when he's not hitting at all and you're struggling as a team and, and you need some offense and John or Diaz can provide that offense.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's an understandable criticism. And I always try to just kind of look at it from maybe his viewpoint. And I'm talking about Dusty, you know, with in relation to why he continues to bat Abreu where he does, why he continues to play Maldonado uh, as much as he does. And maybe it's, you know, he's looking at this situation like, man, you know, I'm down two starting pitchers and really three because McCullers ain't back yet. Um, I need a guy to really reel this staff in, and we've got to get the very best and as much as we can out of the healthy guys that we do have on the mound. And the best guy to do that and call in a game, the value that he places on it is a Maldonado. And I'm also maybe thinking too that, look, he's, it's not like I believe he's waiting for Maldi to all of a sudden, you know, have a a month of hitting 300 and he's going to up that batting average for the first time in the last four seasons to 250. I'm not saying that, but maybe he's looking at the positioning a little bit and being a little bit more loose and patient with these guys to figure some things out because they're not in a Yankee situation or a Red Sox situation where they're looking way up at the Tampa Bay Rays. Now they're three and a half games back and they're playing okay baseball, but they're underperforming in large part. So I think it's a little bit of maybe that, and then you know, just that old school manager of them of, you know, these guys will figure it out. We'd seen it before and it, it Sometimes it's cost them. Sometimes it hasn't. It's worked out where maybe you think about moving Bregman down. Maybe you think about moving Pena up again. Whatever the case is, we've seen it all over the course of the last couple of years, especially. Um, Dusty's going to Dusty. and you, you, Yeah, you gotta- I just,
1: my, my problem with Dusty is, yeah, you, things have gotten turned around eventually. But is it going to kill you to move Ho- Jose Abreu back an occasional game? You know, if if you think he's going to get hot eventually, wait till he gets hot, then move him back up. That that's legal to do. That is legal to do yeah. in baseball. You can't move Sometimes. a guy down in the order and then bring him back up the next day or two days later. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to kill you.
3: Yeah, but you know, maybe he just. Uh, who knows what's really the issue with yeah. the brain? Well, you know I, what yeah, I mean. I don't, I, and then, you know, if you're Dusty, you know, you're thinking like, okay, well, here's the issue is moving him down really going to help our situation here like the guy's busting his tail yes, every day. He's yes, yes, yes it will enough.
1: because he's he's the guy I, I keep saying this because I feel like it is getting lost in the shuffle. It's not just that he's batting fourth. Your best hitter is Jordan Alvarez. He yeah. bats third. You know, you're at, you're telling me Sean that Jordan Alvarez is slumping right now? Maybe cuz nobody wants to give him a good pitch. To, why would you give him a good pitch to hit right now? Why? Why would you yeah, do it? Fair. Jose Abreu's behind him.
3: No, that, that's that's a hundred percent a fair point, and maybe the only point that needs to be made. Um, you know, look, we talked about this. If if you're ever if you've ever got the opportunity to kind of play with some things and maybe do something a little uncharacteristic out of your comfort zone, Dusty, maybe now is the time. For the same point that I just made, that you're so willing to be as patient with these guys to figure some things out only three and a half back hey you're only three and a half back let's tinker with some things and see if that works maybe that gets guys going i'm 100 on board with that
1: one last thing Uh, you know this weekend baseball lost an mvp cy young award winner six-time all-star and the second hardest throwing pitcher of his era vita blue and sean you know you you think well there's what's the houston connection to all this well i'm going to give you a a Houston connection. I think it's going to be pretty interesting to you guys. The only pitcher, by the way, who threw harder in the seventies was Nolan Ryan and blue also helped current Astros front office advisor, Reggie Jackson to three Oakland A's championships. But Sean, what you and our listeners, what you guys may not know is that Vida blue was nearly a quarterback for the Houston Cougars. Listen to this story from our archives. That's when cool. I asked author and historian, Robert Jacobus, To tell the story he told us, uh, or he told in his book, Houston Cougars in the 1960s, Death Threats, the Veer Offense, and the Game of the Century. Here's what Jacobus said when I asked him about that Fight of Blues story. He tried to recruit a guy who would have become the first black quarterback in the South. He also was a pretty darn good high school pitcher in baseball. Robert, who was that guy? What happened when they took him to the Astrodome? Because I think that's a good part of the story. And, and why didn't Yeoman get him?
0: Well, the gentleman you're talking about is uh, Vita Blue, who uh, eventually in 1971 became a Cy Young and uh, most valuable player uh, for the Oakland A's. And I believe he won 24 games that year. And, you know, and he became, a, you know, won over 200 games in the majors. You know, most people around our age remember Vita Blue. You know, he's from uh, northern Louisiana. I believe he's from Minden, Louisiana. Turns out he was a heck of a high school quarterback also. Well, when I interviewed Vida, he said football is probably his better sport. I believe he accounted for about 5,000 yards of offense in about 10 or 11 games his uh, senior year. He uh, came down to U of H, a recruiting trip. Vida uh, told me his first time he'd ever been on an airplane. They took him over to the Astrodome. Because back then, I think it was 1966 or 67, the Astrodome was a big recruiting tool because you know dome stadiums were a brand new concept. Vida, uh, when he went to the dome, uh, from what I understand, he uh, stood out on the mound, the pitcher's mound, and he looked out, you know, beyond the center field fence, and he made a comment something like, you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll be playing here, and he really was all set to come to U of H and uh, be their first black quarterback in the South, you know, run the beer offense with people like Warren McVeigh and. Paul Gibson, you can picture a backfield like those three guys. But then, uh, not long before that, his father passed away. There was an offer on the table from Oakland Athletics, I believe it was a $5,000 bonus. And Vita's family needed the money. And so he decided to go the baseball route. And in the end, it uh, it turned out well for him. Uh, you know, Vita told me, you know, he ended up with his health and two good knees and things like that. But he told me he always kind of wondered, it, you know, he, he would have liked to have given football a shot, maybe. Uh but in the end it, it worked out pretty well for him.
1: Yeah, Sean, sure did work out pretty well for him, I would say.
3: There, you know, there's there's so many of those stories, you know, with uh the greatest athletes, you know, um in their respective sports, you know. Why? Because they were athletes. They were very good at everything, you know, and um it it's funny. I you know, looking back at like his uh his, his career, you know, 209 game winner, ERA title one year in 71. And that one year in 71, I'm just looking, dude won 24 ball games, ERA title, was an all-star, won the Cy Young, won the MVP, and they lost um, the AL Championship Series to the, go figure, the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> you know, um, I could guarantee you this, the Orioles did not win the World Series that year in 1971. I, uh, I don't know who did, probably the Cardinals or something, but, Um, it's just funny looking at these guys' careers. And, you know, I've been seeing a lot of stuff today uh, since his passing that, man, why didn't Vida in the Hall of Fame? Why didn't he in the Hall of Fame? And he's got some really terrific numbers. But they're just not – they're not Hall of Fame numbers. You know, you go – but he's one of those guys like like a Burt Blylevin. You know, you go back and you look at these guys or even a Tommy John and you look at their numbers and you're like, Man, they're pretty good. They look a heck of a lot better now today than maybe they did back then when everybody was pitching 250 plus innings every season. And, um, you know, the complete games, the shutouts, all these things were up. But he was a darn good pitcher, maybe not a Hall of Famer, but, um, you know, from everything that I've read and heard over the course of the last not just 24, or 48 hours about the guy. But uh, obviously he was household name because of the uniqueness of his name for over the years. He was a hell of a, a baseball guy, man, and um, you know, look, he went through his adversities during his life, like a lot of other people do. But um, what a life he led! It's it's incredible to go back and look at it.
1: You mentioned Burt Blylevin. No, Blylevin eventually got into the Hall of Fame, and maybe yeah, it's not over maybe for Tommy Vita John will too. Yeah, it, it might not be over for for Vita Blue. And the the interesting thing is that he passed away right after. Oakland found out that the A's are moving to Las Vegas, and it feels like that whole sort of era is is sort of dying on Oakland. You know, the the championship back in the late eighties with Oakland's going to be a little bit marred with the steroids with Conseco and Maguire. So really, the golden era for Oakland A's baseball—they were the Kansas City A's, they were the Philadelphia A's—but the Oakland A golden era was those early seventy teams with Reggie and Vida and Sal Bando, and you know all those great players from that yeah. from that whole generation.
3: You know, uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody's done it and somebody will do it whenever it does become official because it is inevitable whenever uh, Oakland is no longer Oakland and they're Las Vegas or whatever. Um, but that those those teams, those great teams and all of the great players, you know, amongst – and I'm just talking specifically baseball. Amongst all of the organizations – and one with history, just talking about it, you know, they, they used to be the Philadelphia Athletics, you know, I mean, that goes back hundred years. Um, maybe the most underappreciated and one of the, you know, organizations that's still around today that just, they don't give the amount of respect that is so due to the, the history, Historical elements of the franchise, because of everything you just said i mean you 're talking about the era of Reggie Jackson winning championships and just so many great players man um, they 've become a, an embarrassment they become the butt of jokes they 've become uh, just a punchline, and that sucks you know i mean there 's an entertaining and joyous part about it because they 're in the Astros division. But you know, from a baseball fan standpoint and a historical element, it is sad to see. It's sad to listen to. And um, you know, hopefully, wherever they go, if they wind up in Las Vegas, then they can. Oh, they, that's a done coach. deal.
1: It's a, they're going to Vegas in twenty twenty seven. Yeah, yeah. That's that, hopefully that's they ha- that can.
3: Happened. You know, Vegas. You know, pays homage to their history, and it's such a difficult thing to do. Um, you know when when you're in a new city and a, a commuter city like you know Las Vegas is, um, but they they definitely deserve better than what they've gotten in Oakland from via their ownership and unfortunately I don't think that part of it's going to change. It's just going to be a new city and a new venue and everything's new and they ride ride high off of that. But you know we'll see.
1: Yeah, and I I just I got to say it again before we close out. You know this is Bill this is Bill James talking, but. You know, for the people back then, Vita Blue, second hardest throwing guy in the 70s behind Nolan. If you're second to Nolan Ryan, that is no shame. And, you know, we're talking about three World Series. We're talking about a Cy Young Award winner, um, 209 wins. And, you know, it used to be 300 was the bar. I think 200 might be the bar from, you know, the last 20 years or so. And so you might have to relook at what that was. And maybe he should be judged on those other guys. Maybe he should be judged on the current win totals for, for starting pitchers, but yeah, just incredible. And, you know, the Oakland A's um, th- everybody thinks of like, Oh, it's terrible because of the last few years, the last decade or whatever. Cause nobody comes to the ballpark, especially in the last, you know, three or four years, they haven't been very good, but mm-hmm. let's not forget, you know, the Oakland A's, started or were a key component for Moneyball. That's where the Astros picked that stuff up and took it to a whole other level. They were a a key component for the, that early 70, you know, they brought that early seventies dynasty and, you know, we had lost the dynasties there for a little bit with the Yankees ended in the mid sixties, but then they, they had that early seventies dynasty. Then you went Mm -hmm. to the big red machine. So, you know, they, they brought, they brought the dynasty a little bit back. I mean, Think About it, Sean. Um, we talk about it with the Astros trying to win back to back. It's been a long time since the team went back to back. What the, what those teams did back then might have been a little bit easier because there were less teams, but still, it's hard. Like, we, we just see it with the Astros. You come off playing into October, November, injuries because of you know the pitchers yeah. of, are pitching, uh, you know, another month of the season to try to win that champion. The, that what you're putting on an arm and you know, guys just a little bit more tired coming into training camp, coming into the regular season the next year. So it's a big deal, you know, trying to win these back-to-back. What they did was, you know, we can't forget that this was, this is hard, a little bit easier back then, but still it's hard to do.
3: No, there ain't no question about it. I mean, what's it been? 20, 22 years uh, since it was last done by the New York Yankees. Um, And it'll be done again. It'll happen. Um, You know, teams, teams are too good. Roster construction, um, you know, the, what these GMs and these owners are able to do. And in baseball, you know, look at the Mets. Look at the Dodgers. Um, you know, the Astros are kind of in the conversation now with the Yankees, of course, you know, not looking necessarily at that luxury tax. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a salary cap-free sport um, with a roster construction and an owner that's willing to say, let's go get it done, whatever it takes um, to do it. Oakland A's have been the farthest away from that sort of mentality um for as long as I can remember. But again, it will happen, you know. If it's the Astros, I would love to see it. If it's uh Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, somebody's gonna do it again. Um and my guess it would be at some point inside the next decade, and that's probably, you know, not a hot take. Um you know, maybe stating the obvious, but it'll happen again. But because it's happened and it's been so long since it's happened. Yeah, all due respect to the A's. I mean, you look at the dominant organizations in baseball history from the Yankees, you know, to the Cardinals, to the Dodgers, to the A's, to the Reds. I mean, you go up and down the line, you know, decade upon decade upon decade. There's always been one. Two thousand two thousand twenties. It's the Astros decade, baby. And we'll see how they uh, finish, finish the uh, 2020s out. Hopefully it's uh, with a couple of more.
1: If the Astros are going to get a back-to-back, they need to start getting their tushy in gear and hopefully we're going to talk because we're recording this before Chaz McCormick comes back. And then of course, Brantley should be back in the next day or two. So by that time, maybe night or by this time, when we record our show on Thursday night, hopefully we're going to be talking about
3: what, what do people say, Robert? What do people say every year? It's baseball. Let's not act brand new. You know, let's check the standings, you know, come Memorial day. What's supposed to happen around Memorial day? I think you're getting a guy named Jose Altuve back around that time. Maybe sooner.
1: Maybe sooner. Maybe
3: sooner. sooner. You're going to be, if everything stays status quo, and unfortunately, knock on wood, it doesn't feel like this is the kind of season where it's going to be that way, but you're going to get Brantley and Chaz back and Altuve back, and you might be at full Strength, at least as full strength as you can be now with no Garcia. Maybe McCullers is right around the corner too. Uh, It's going to be interesting. Then we can really start talking some ball right around Memorial Day.
1: Yeah, I'm more worried about the pitching, to be honest with you. But, (laughs) uh, hey, we'll see you on Thursday. Have a good one, man.
3: All right. Enjoyed it.
0: You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
1: Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.